You're listening to IoT Leaders, a podcast from SI that shares real IoT stories from the field about digital transformation swings and misses, lessons learned, and innovation strategies that work. In each episode, you'll hear our conversations with top digitization leaders on how IoT is changing the world for the better. Let IoT Leaders be your guide to IoT, digital transformation, and innovation. Let's get into the show. Hello, my name is Nico, CEO of SI. Welcome to this episode of the IoT Leaders podcast. And in this one, we're going to talk all things rail. And it's a very nice story about a very old industry. Let's face it, rail is 200 years old, and it's still essentially the same system of a engine pulling carriages with steel wheels on steel rails. And it's the same system we're using 200 years later. And it's not a industry that has really embraced technology very much other than in the actual uh, rolling stock itself. But in this case, we're talking about IoT and the ability to monitor, do environmental monitoring to predict accidents, which can be terrible, as you'll hear, when they happen. So it is a great IoT use case with probably one of our very first customers from 14, 15 years ago, who asked us, could we help with a design product that didn't exist at a low price that could actually monitor railways. And you'll hear Declan, who's my guest this week, you'll hear him uh, talk about what they did, the journey he went through, the pivot he had to do to solve the problem and uh, where he is now. So it's a story we can all relate to about railways. And it's also a climate change story about how the nature of climate change is producing more localized weather, which increases the need to solve this problem in the first place. So lots here, including (laughs) for those of you who really wanted to know an explanation of why train tracks buckle in the UK, but not in Australia where it's even hotter. So if you ever wanted to know that, continue listening. So with that, I'm going to hand you over to my chat with Declan O'Brien of Trentrace. Enjoy this. So Declan, welcome. Welcome to the IoT Leaders podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for being asked. Sure. So let's dive in and we're going to talk about all things railways, safety, many things. But uh, before we do so, I always like uh, our guests on the uh, IoT Leaders podcast to just uh, introduce themselves so people get to know you before they hear your story. So maybe what's your quick story of uh, how you got to where you are today? Well, my name is Declan O'Brien. I'm a mechanical engineer. I have a master's in engineering received many years ago in Ireland. I started off, I suppose, I got into the medical device industry um, after about two or three years working um, where I got exposed to writing software, software for uh, process control, for quality management and for stuff like that. I suppose I got more into uh, engineering systems and stuff like that and maintenance systems. I suppose around 2010 was when I started my um, Internet of Things story. When it, I don't think the uh, the Internet of Things phrase was around at the time. It was more kind of remote telemetry or whatever it was. Machine machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, it's been a kind of a, a meandering route to get to where we are today. We now have a, a system called Trentrace that does um, mainly environmental monitoring, and it's based um, around the railway industry. Uh, it can also um, transport infrastructure in general, but railways are, I suppose, the where it's most at home. Right. And we're going to obviously get into that and uh, what you've done with uh, Trentrace, where you're a director. So whenever you talk about railways, you have to talk about safety. And whenever you talk about safety, unfortunately, you have to use examples of where it can go wrong. 
because that's really what we're trying to avoid here. And so where I'd like to refer to is just to give an example from the UK, which was in 2020, there was the Stonehaven incident in Scotland, wasn't it? So maybe just to recap what happened there, because that's a great example of what your company is trying to stop happening in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Stonehaven was an accident that happened um, during the COVID lockdown, which I suppose is probably a little bit lucky. Yeah, uh, because too many people on the train, right? That's right. There were only actually nine people on this train and it ended up with three fatalities, unfortunately, and six people were injured, three of whom were injured relatively seriously. I suppose it happened due to what we're all uh, kind of experiencing, which is climate change, really. Um, And whether you believe the the, the science or not behind climate change, um, whether events are becoming more frequent and nastier in their consequence, unfortunately. And just to give a background of what happened at Stonehaven was a commuter train was traveling on the track at about 70 miles an hour and it hit a landslip. The train was derailed. Uh, the, the front carriage left the train and rolled down an embankment and went on fire. And the other two uh, carriages came off the track. So when they looked at um, what were the causes of the accident, uh, the first one was that there was around 50 millimeters of rain fell in the previous seven or eight hours. So for Scot- even for Scotland or for Ireland as well, where we're well used to rain, it's a hell of a lot of rain to fall in a very, very short space of time. When they look back at the causes for the accident or what they might have uh, seen or been able to foresee uh, before the accident, uh, they discovered that there were actually two previous landscapes occurred one of them in 1915, which caused a a fatality, and another one that happened around 2020, where they saw that there were problems with this again, or sorry, around 2015. When they looked and they they, they looked at the root causes for uh, why the landslip occurred, because, you know, things like this, they they can be very difficult to prevent all the time, but they look back to see, you know, what actually were the root causes of the accident. The first one was obviously the severe weather. So they got 50 millimeters of rain in a very short space of time. That caused flooding. It, uh, the flood damage actually caused the landslip, but it, it also happened because of poor drainage around the area. And when they look back, uh, the, the previous contractor who had been uh, tasked with making the area a little safer along there didn't put in the drains as they were supposed to be, and they weren't monitored properly either. So a combination of those two things caused the actual landslip to occur, and hence the accident. You know, you can say it was a, an, an unfortunate, unforeseeable event, but when you look back at the information that was there, they knew that an awful lot of rain had fallen. They knew that there were issues with the area. Is something like that preventable? And you can't say for sure with 100% certainty, yes, we could have absolutely prevented this accident. But you can certainly increase your odds by putting it monitoring in a place like that because all of the evidence pointed to the fact that there's something could happen on this stretch. Exactly. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of different use cases on this uh, IoT Leaders podcast in over 20 episodes, I think. And, you know, one of the common themes is that by monitoring a lot of things, uh, you can spot patterns. And as you say, we know how to monitor rainfall. We know how to monitor drainage systems. We know how to monitor where the trains are and how fast they're going. And sort of putting these data together to predict the likelihood of something is one of the big advantages of IoT, is making sense out of lots and lots of data. So we know this is a huge issue. And uh, as you rightly say, with climate change, happening and uh, certainly in the UK the last, I would say, just month, we've gone from the hottest day ever, over 40 degrees centigrade, over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, to some of the worst rain certainly I've seen, tremendous storms. So, you know, and that appears to be the new normal. So this is a really important issue, especially as people's lives and safety are concerned. So let's try and unpack this story. So you were telling me uh, previously that 
clearly this is not a new thing. Railways have been around for 200 years. And there have been a lot of tenders in this space, haven't there? But they tend to be not really based on an IoT model, as, as it seems. It, it, it tends to be like small amounts of very big equipment as opposed to IoT you know, sensors all over the place and, and lots of measurement. So maybe sort of explain that, that model from your perspective. Um, yeah, I suppose what we've seen is that the tenders come out for um, lots of the, the, the public procurement processes. Um, they seem to be based more around, I suppose you might call them slightly older models, where weather stations have been uh, monitored remotely for, for a long time, as have uh, some water levels as well. And it seems to be that it's almost the people who are doing the specifying are looking at the type of costs that are going to come in for these things. And they specify very, very expensive equipment to do the thing. So if they want, for example, if they want to measure water levels for predicted flooding or something like that, they want to measure to maybe 0.1 millimeters accuracy with the pressure sensors and um, sorry, vented pressure sensors that take account of the um, changes in atmospheric pressure and things like that. But they want to do it to a very, very high degree of accuracy. Whereas what we look at is more less accurate instrumentation. So we might be able to measure to, for example, one millimeter accuracy rather than 0.1 millimeter accuracy. But the, there's an order of magnitude difference in the cost of the instrumentation. So when you specify very expensive equipment, you want to be, you can only afford to put it very, very well spaced out. Um, you can't afford to put it, uh, say, once every five kilometers. You have to do it once every 50 kilometers. What we try to look at is, wouldn't it be better if we could measure to plus or minus one millimeter uh, every five kilometer distance or every 10 kilometer, you know, depending on the project, rather than spacing out your equipment an awful lot more and being able to measure very, very accurately. And especially with monitoring things like rainfall amounts, things like water levels, is it really an advantage to know to within plus or minus 0.1 millimeter how much rain has fallen, or is it plus or minus one millimeter sufficiently accurate? And if you look back at things like the way climate change is happening, what's happening is the weather event, the severe weather events are happening more frequently, but severe weather events tend to be at times very, very localized. So if you get convective storms, something like that, right. you can have say 50 minutes, like in the case of uh, Stonehaven, you could have 50 millimeters rainfall in the space of two hours in a five square kilometer radius and 10 kilometers down the road, it may not have rained at all. So right, and that, that's a really interesting power of what we can do yeah. by putting in slightly less accurate instrumentation over a much wider area, Right, I think is telling us an awful lot more data. That is so true. I mean, I know I was talking about just the weather we've had the last couple of months or so, but I was thinking of some of the much needed rain, certainly from my garden perspective, much needed rain that, you know, I went into work the next day and said, oh, God, thank goodness we had all that rain. And people who lived less than 10 miles away from me said, what rain? I said, you must be mm. kidding. It rained for four hours. It was thunderstorms, not a drop. So it, that pattern is changing, which has implications for environmental monitoring and, and, and measurement, as you point out. So let's talk about Tentrace and what you did. So you've had a couple of sort of attempts at getting the right solution, haven't you? So let's let's talk about it from a product point of view. So mm -hmm. as I understand it, you started off with something that would go, well, let's, no, let's take a step back even before that. You uh, wanted to solve this problem. We're going to get into how SI helped you solve this problem and how you found us. But you had to go initially at putting something under the rail. Is that right? Sort of putting something under the rail to monitor it. That's right, Jay. We started off, like a lot of companies start off with a little sob story, <laughs> um, where uh, myself and a partner, we decided, or we were through a tender process, we started a job for Irish Rail to measure the uh, rail temperature. We started off with a product that was sitting underneath the rail, 
attached to the bottom of the rail uh, was a, a PT100 temperature probe that measured the temperature. There was a battery and a modem, and all was self-contained on a little clip that sat underneath the rail. We had enormous problems with connectivity. And my partner who looked after, I looked after the software end of it so that we could get the information into a database and display it to the user. And, and my partner was responsible for all of the hardware. And everything was blamed from even the Vodafone network was blamed as that we were connecting to uh, for the, the issues with the data. Issues such as uh, not being able to connect and when it did connect, issues with the timestamp where you, you know, you can get into the technicalities of how the infra, how the uh, how the hardware actually picks up its time. Uh, yeah. But if you don't have if you don't have reliable timestamping on your data, it becomes very difficult to do anything with it. And around that time, I met with Ian Marsden, one of your uh, directors, one um, of our co-founders. Yeah. yeah, yeah, purely by fluke. I think I'm probably one of your oldest customers. I would think. I think um, you but are. Just, um, a little shout out. I think you've been with us. <laughs> since um, the very early days. I don't know whether you have been the longest of our, our customers, but but you certainly be with us for, for a while, yeah. I think, I think I'll claim that title anyway. <laughs> okay, because we can't prove it, so we might as well claim it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you met him. Where yeah, did you so meet him? I, 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 I met Ian. I was working close to the airport in Dublin, and he happened to be passing through, and, and I had made contact with him previously about this project, but he, was, he had kind of missed the boat. Um, but we initially made contact then, and uh, he was in the back of my mind as to somebody who could probably help us out if we ever needed help. And as it turned out, we did actually need help. So I said about um, a little time after that, I said about working with uh, with Ian and Paul Marshall, one of the other co-founders, to design a product that we could uh, use to actually measure the rail temperature and do it in a different way to the previous incarnation we had of the product. And we got a much better product. Um, it was much more reliable, but it still wasn't reliable enough for what we did, for what we wanted to do. So, as the next iteration of our, our our product, we decided to split it because our we discovered that most of the issues with reliable connectivity were due to the fact that uh, our modem was sitting underneath a big block of metal, which was the yeah doesn't help to see. Yeah, not the best place to put a modem underneath a big no. chunk of about three inches of metal. Yeah. Paul, who I, who I was working pretty closely with on the on the new iteration, suggested that we uh, split and move the modem to the side of the rail and uh, connect wirelessly to the sensor that will sit underneath the rail. So we use the, the Zigbee protocol to, to make a wireless connection, which is pretty much the same as Bluetooth or a different protocol, same idea. Um, so we ended up with a unit with the modem sitting at the side of the track, powered by uh, a rechargeable battery and solar panel uh, that connected to our temperature sensor sitting underneath the rail. And once we started with that, uh, the connectivity issues vanished. Uh, we could have our modem connected all the time. There were no issues with time. There were no issues with power because we had solar panel. And suddenly we had a good system for being able to measure the rail temperature. If I can just hit pause there. Again, I want to uh, draw the lesson from that. It's interesting the way you phrased it. Uh, we have a lot of customers, prospects, people who talk to us who say, oh, the connectivity, oh, your SIM card isn't working because of the connectivity. And so if it's connectivity, it must be the problem with the SIM card. And actually the SIM doesn't do the connectivity, the modem does. And it's the interaction, the firmware details. A lot of people say, oh, oh I don't want to get involved in the firmware, but, but the firmware is absolutely key. And you mentioned just one example there, time stamping. So if you've not got the right firmware settings and you, you've not got a holistic device design by somebody who knows what they're doing, then actually, even if you do get the data and in the first iteration, you couldn't get the data, but then when you sort of moved it away from three, three inches of metal, 
got the data, then sometimes you can get the data, but the timestamp isn't working for reasons that are pretty technical that most people don't understand. And so the data is useless. So one of the things that we do, and it's um, for those of you watching on YouTube, there's a reason I've used the picture that I have behind my head, which if you're just listening to this, is it's, it's the circuit board picture, this week's picture, is that we always say as SI, it's all about the device. It's all about the device. And even on our website recently, and I don't know whether you're aware of this, Declan, but we had a survey by Kaleido Research. They think it's the largest IoT survey that's been done. It was 750 enterprises globally, about 60% in the US, rest around the world. And these are companies with over a thousand employees. And they asked them, if you've done a project, in retrospect, what was the single hardest point of the project? And 84% of people who said they'd already tried IoT, because as you said, it's been around for at least 12 years, 84% said, in retrospect, I totally underestimated how difficult the product is. I just thought it was a case of putting a SIM in because we've all been trained. That's how our phones work. And so, you know, we always having hammering home this message. You have to start with the product and you have to work with people who understand the product and the firmware settings and the way networks work and the, the clock and the timestamp. And because that is the number one inhibitor for IoT. And in fact, you know, we're going back to hardware being important from thinking that hardware wasn't important because the cloud came and we've seen the back of hardware. It's all about software and it's all in the cloud. And, you know, our view is that no, when it comes to uh, IoT, both devices and edge aggregation devices with 80% of applications going to be processed at the edge. Actually, we're now swinging the pendulum back and the hardware is hugely important. And, and yours is a great case study in that sense because that was the help that you needed. You did, you yeah. still, I guess, using Vodafone, but it wasn't Vodafone's issue. It, it was the device, right? That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And I know just to come back, um, you know, some people think that, oh, well, we'll use the cloud for our stuff um, and it's a... A panacea or an answer to all our problems like as i said before you know the cloud is just a computer in somebody else's office <laughs> you, know, you you i just want to make sure our listeners caught that because when when, when we first sort of did a sync up prior to this podcast you told me that i wrote it down i thought it was the most succinct explanation of cloud computing i'd ever heard so i gotta repeat it the cloud is just a big computer in somebody else's office <laughs> that's a all the books written right. on cloud computing, you sort of summed up with <laughs> summed up with one phrase. But essentially, yeah, of course it is. So you uncoupled the two pieces, right? You still need to monitor the rail, but you put a little pole, as I understand, at yep. the side, and that helped with the comms. So, and then you've got this other model that you mentioned, which is smaller, cheaper devices that can be put closer together, especially because of the local nature of climate change and slippage doesn't happen over a 10 kilometer area. It happens in a small area. So right. just in terms of how it works, let's take, if we can, three things. You mentioned temperature. We all have images of rails buckling, which can be very dangerous. Water, so water flooding, bad drains, and slippage. Just to explain to listeners, how do you measure those things with your with your solution? Yeah, so the Trantrace solution, essentially what we've tried to do uh, with our product, and I think we have, we've got it nailed now, is that um, we can sell people the product. So it's a box that they can literally put on the side of, uh, or they can put it on a pole on the side of a track. 
they can turn it on, connect the battery, and we have all of the infrastructure done. So you guys have uh, done the hardware design for me. I have done all of the software design. So we've got all of the intricacies are taken out of it for the, the, for the customer. So it's literally pretty much plug and play if you want to look at it that way. So we can measure uh, water temperature, obviously. Uh, the, so the rail temperature is done uh, via a wireless Zigbee connection. The water level is done. We use a pressure sensor that's vented to the atmosphere. And that will, uh, it's literally mounted in a mounting tube. So you see in the image behind me, even just in the corner here, if I point this, I can't see it now, but in the background there, you can see one of the uh, the solar panels. And there's a a water level sensor uh, mounted uh, just over the the, the edge of the ditch there. And basically what it does is it measures the pressure of the water and that's how you calculate your water level. It's very useful. We record when, when we display it on screen, you can see how the water level rises and falls. And you can very, very easily build up a picture of what it should do based on the amount of rainfall that you have. For a right. Time. So you can look for unusual patterns of data. Exactly. So if it rains this amount, the water pressure should be that amount. But if the water pressure is greater than that, then it's indicative of, a, of a, something of else problem. happening. Yes, yeah, exactly. like the drains. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can see, we know, for example, with this one that we usually see a difference in the water tower the the, the water level tends to rise uh, pretty much linearly if we get a heavy rainfall event the previous day the picture that's in the background there it's actually on a floodplain in kind of the northern half of ireland i suppose and it's close to the shannon the, the big river that runs uh, through the middle of ireland and what can happen is if you get a lot of rain uh, there's a floodplain around here that's naturally occurring and the water drains into there but we can see that we know that if it rains on a tuesday on a wednesday we expect the water level to rise right. depending on how much rainfall happens we can also see the shape of the drop off and that we know that if it doesn't follow the normal pattern that there's something else going on or whatever if you measure that little and often as you said not just every now and again you build up a whole pattern and dashboard which is your sort of early warning system for the rail networks along right you know they go over long distances the one that fascinates me is slippage so i understand water i understand temperature so how do you measure slippage or or actually better word predict slippage perhaps it's starting or likely it's almost like sensing an avalanche it seems to me so it, it seems intuitively really difficult thing to do yeah, so what we've done with the uh, slippage stuff is that we we use a, a load cell uh, to measure the tension of the cable that's pinned to the side of the, the, the surface that we think may slip or whatever. And what we do, again, if we go back to the hardware design to save uh, money so that we're not sending data every uh, 15 seconds on every parameter that we measure, we send in general every 10 minutes. But for our slippage detection, we send every 15 seconds, or we can send it once every 15 seconds if we find an issue. So what happens is we measure the value on the load cell and every 15 seconds, we have a hook to say that, well, if it goes at 1% higher than it was in the previous reading, we know there's an issue here. So we we send the data. So we can get data back to the central station within 15 seconds of any issue happening. And an issue happening can be if, in general, what happens is if you if you get a lot of rainfall, it can happen, or it can also happen during uh, times of very cold weather when the the soil actually uh, freezes and when it freezes the water expands and any water that's in cracks and things like that will, will will push them apart very often you can get instability that's caused by that but we can pick it up because of the change in tension in the cable and it's sensitive enough actually to pick up when the sun comes out and when the sun goes in because it actually warms up the cable slightly and we can see the difference in temperature with that we can compensate for that because we put a temperature sensor on the cable um, and again it's because it's the same technology as we're using to measure the rail temperature 
So we're almost getting it for free. The beauty of doing what we're doing is that it's it's probably an order of magnitude or even more cheaper than other methods of doing. Like it can be measured with a fiber optic cable where you can build up fantastic pictures of what's happening. But the problem is that you can only do it over a very small area. If you spend maybe a million euros or whatever it's going to be measuring the differences on an embankment, well, would you not be better off spending a million plus another million maybe just to fix the issue and you don't have to monitor it anymore? Whereas with our one, I mean, we could probably measure it for 2,000 euros um, and you don't need to do any remedial work until you think there's actually an issue. It's a nice story, isn't it? Because some of the IoT use cases are based on massively sophisticated technology and artificial intelligence and ML and satellites. But actually, when it comes to the environmental monitoring, in your case, if you, you put a cable along the bank, peg it in, then you can measure, the, as you said, the temperature of the cable, you can compensate for it. But if also one part of the bank moves, the tension on the cable changes. And therefore, yeah. you say, it is a high-tech solution, but it's not. But more importantly, because it's a cable, but more importantly, it's this point you keep on coming back to. It's a low-cost solution that can be implemented many, many times. That's right. Um, yeah. Because the cost, and especially, you know, with public finances the way they are right now and inflation and debt and a whole series of things, a lot of the budgets are, they've always been tight, but they're particularly tight. And people saying, oh, well, I, I know I need to do this, but perhaps there hasn't been an accident for a while. And there's always somebody else wanting access to the money. Whereas if you can say, look, if you've got an order of magnitude or even two orders of magnitude difference in the cost you say, well, just for a small amount of cost, you can put these things in. And yeah, you're not going to get the data to five decimal places, but you're going to get the data. It's the sort of perfect enough model. That's then, exactly uh, it. It's a lot better than doing nothing. And then the human cost and the actual cost of an event. So I think it is a classic IoT because what you're actually doing is relatively simple. You know, in the case of the slippage, the, the cable measuring temperature and these things have been around for years but your business model is optimized for what's happening both from a budget point of view and from a climate change point of view and and as you said the, the trick on this was getting the device and the connectivity which is of that's, course where yeah. we where we come in and that's why we're uh, talking so maybe we can move now to let's look at the uh, rail industry so you have this solution rolling it out able to do what what we've described now, it, from a rail perspective, there's lots of things that they need to look at. And, you know, as an outsider to the rail industry, if I look in, they're spending a lot of money on new rolling stock. They're, I mean, electronic tickets in the UK, finally, uh, the big innovation of electronic tickets, you know, the Wi-Fi on the train, the weather monitoring and things like that. But you're actually coming at this, it seems, from that sort of the train and monitoring some big things like weather but you're actually linking environmental monitoring into this. And I guess what you're saying is you need to bring all this information together over wide areas in order to make sense of the big picture. I mean, it's like there's a very big dashboard opportunity here, especially considering prices of components are coming down, prices of connectivity is coming down, prices of hardware is coming down. So I assume that from your perspective, you're saying, look, given what's happening and all of these trends prices coming down, miniaturization, it is an opportunity to add environmental monitoring to the mix on a mass scale. Would I be right in saying that? That's absolutely right. The more monitoring you can get in, the, the more data you build up. And data is obviously, data history is very important for things, for example, like rail track. If you, if you monitor the max temperatures and the minimum temperatures and you see where your averages are, 
when they lay rail, they use a thing called a rail neutral temperature. So this is, you, you see a lot of talk about in the UK, well, my God, we've got a little bit of warm weather here. Why do the trains have to slow down? I can't, they run these in Australia and India and places like that. that that's right. That's what, and, leaves, and, and leaves on the track. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose, you know, a little bit of knowledge of the dangerous things they might say and that, you know, you know that, well, it expands and, you know, they can have hot temperatures somewhere else. And But the real issue is that it's the difference between the maximum temperature and the minimum temperature that really makes the difference when you lay rails. Because when you hit a maximum temperature and you think the maximum is going to be, say, 50 degrees, uh, that's the, the track temperature is going to be 50 degrees, you have to look at what the minimum temperature is going to be. And you might decide that the minimum temperature is going to be minus 5 degrees or minus 10 degrees. Um, so essentially what you've got to do is you've got to calculate, well, where's the middle point? So that's the temperature that I'm going to use to lay my track. So obviously, if you pick that the, the rail neutral temperature is 27 degrees, um, it's not going to be 27 degrees at night when you're laying a new piece of track. So what they do is they either um, compress the track or they stretch the track as they put it down. What they do is they stress it with the amount that says that, right, well, if it was 27 degrees, this is how it's now 12 degrees. This is how much stress should be in the track. And so when you come to places like Australia or uh, India, um, they don't have very low temperatures uh, in most of the places. So they don't have the same range in their temperature. So they don't have these issues. That's an added bonus. I didn't think as part of this podcast, we'd answer the question, which I've asked, which is, okay, it got hot, but rail lines in Australia don't buckle. So are we using different, I just thought we were using different metal or whatever. And that the explanation of, of, of the highs and lows in the range, that was interesting. I never uh, realized that that's what, what they did. And I guess it links back to your system, doesn't it? Because it does, exactly, it, yeah. you may set the, I mean, six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, whatever it was here in the UK, we said, oh, we had two years before that, we had the previous highest record temperature of 38.4 or whatever, whatever. And it, that was a one in a thousand year event or whatever, but it turned out to be a one in a two year event. Two years later, it went to above 40. So even 40 degrees centigrade. So even if you set the range with climate change, certainly at the top end, those ranges are rapidly out of date that's right exactly. rapidly out of date i mean when you set a new high bar within two years it's unthinkable for it to be 40 degrees centigrade in the uk yeah that's right yeah uh, because you've got to remember with all these high temperatures um if we have a really cold winter time where we get maybe minus 10 if you lay your track and you're you're uh, laying it with an eye on your highest temperatures when you hit minus 10 we'll have problems with the rails that crack because when they contract, they get into too much tension and they'll break. That also happens. Well, we're learning a lot. So it's absolutely fascinating. And it's a great story. We could talk about this for ages. As you know, I, I was sort of on the periphery of the rail industry prior to this, spent time at Hyperloop, actually trying to kill the rail, rail industry, <laughs> selling Hyperloop around the world. But I did spend an awful lot of time studying the rail industry as a result because that's the people, the regulators and all the different people. And there's a, a lot of there's a lot of systems in place. And it's fair to say that technology hasn't advanced at the same speed in rail uh, as it has in some other industries. But what you're showing is that it is possible now with IoT to actually get data at low cost with a high density to actually predict things that were impossible to predict previously. Like in the back to where we started, you know, the Stonehaven accident unfortunately clearly the bank slipped onto the tracks and it had probably been there for quite a while and um it was a remote area and the trains slammed into it and unfortunately the accident happened but the ability to now monitor 
a whole infrastructure like this, it's becoming realistic thanks to companies like Tentrace, your solution, just because of what IoT can do and what the data can do. And you then combine that with the satellite monitoring and the rainfall, all the other things, we actually have a chance to really predict this at relatively low cost without having to buy large amounts of high equipment and put it in every now and again. So it's a very big area and a big opportunity in an industry, in a very big industry around the world, which is a problem that needs solving. So you're doing something which really does contribute in terms of IoT making a difference. So it's uh, it must be quite heartening for you when you actually see these systems in place and the fact that your data is now now being used. And we really need to use that data more, don't we? Yeah, for sure. There's another added benefit, especially for the rail industry from a safety perspective, which is the safety of the rail personnel. I know Network Rail, um, they operate a policy of uh, keep boots off ballast, which basically the ballast is the, the, the stones on which the, stones, yeah. the rails are laid. And what they want to do is they want to keep uh, the personnel boots off that because, because, because trains hit them. Yeah, it's dangerous. In a red yeah. zone, there are trains and traffic happening and uh, accidents happen. So by monitoring things like, you know, I mean, you don't need to have a guy go around and monitor the track temperature by sticking on a magnetic uh, temperature gauge. Or you don't need to have a guy go around and inspect a culvert to see if it's blocked or whatever with debris or uh, leaves or branches and stuff like that to, to see, you know, is the water flowing and draining away correctly? I mean, you can do it automatically with our technology, which keeps people safe. It keeps people on the train safe and it keeps the personnel who are looking after it safe. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an area that IoT is going to make a major contribution and we'll all, as individuals, feel the effects of it because the trains will run better and more efficiently, yeah. less delays, etc. We could talk for a long time and I'd be in danger of sharing war stories from my Hyperloop days, but um, we'll probably, <laughs> which by the way, I failed. You know, I kept saying to the UK government, you really shouldn't do HS2, the high-speed rail, because there's a different way of doing it, but it was too late. It has its own momentum, but one day it'll happen. So that was really, really interesting. Our time is up, I'm afraid. Thanks for being one of our I won't say oldest, that, that is a different connotation, but one of our longest um, uh, customers, right in the sweet spot of what we do, solving the device issue and the connectivity issue. And in an area that, as we said, is massively important and everyone listening to this or watching this will actually be able to relate to the problem that you're solving. So it's a really nice case study and great for the IoT Leaders podcast. So thanks very much for uh, joining us on this episode. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to IoT Leaders, a podcast brought to you by SI. Our team delivers innovative global IoT cellular connectivity solutions that just work, helping our customers deploy differentiated experiences and disrupt their markets. Learn more at SI.com. You've been listening to IoT Leaders, featuring digitization leadership on the front lines of IoT. Our vision for this podcast is to be your guide to IoT and digital disruption, helping you to plot the right route to success. We hope today's lessons, stories, strategies, and insights have changed your vision of IoT. Let us know how we're doing by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and recommending us. Thanks for listening. Until next time.